Tonight, on Narrative Special Report, as the US and Russia stare down each other over Ukraine, we'll go live to Kyiv in Red Lines Over Ukraine. Thanks to BetterHelp for supporting tonight's investigation. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com forward slash zev. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash zev. Start living a better life today. And hello, everybody. Welcome to a very special edition of Narrative Live. I'm in Toronto, and our very special guest from Kyiv is Yevgen Fichenko. How are you, Yevgen? Nice to see you tonight. Early morning. There, yeah, good evening. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yevgen is a very smart person. He's the PhD and a co-founder and chief editor of a fact-checking website, stopfake.org. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Now, he's also a former student of the man you see on the far right of your screen, Michael McKay, who's also in Canada, in Ottawa. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm very well, Zeb. Good to see you. Now, Michael's been here on the show before talking about all things Ukraine with us. And as we seem to be on the edge of all-out war in Ukraine tonight, you know, we're back together with Michael and glad to have Yevgen here to talk about the prospects of what's going on, but also to understand exactly how uh, what's happening in Ukraine really does affect the United States and American politics going forward. But Yevgen, give us an update. What's going on right now in Ukraine? Uh, yeah, so we are now at the moment when uh, we talk about escalation of the war, but actually the main point is that Ukraine is living with this war during the last eight years, since 2014, when Russia attacked Ukraine first and occupied first Crimea, and then part of Donbass, and now we have 7% of Ukraine's territory been occupied by Russia. So for us, it's not a new reality. We continue living in that. But now we also feel surrounded by Russian forces from all the sides, and that's bring kind of a new reality. But on another hand, I look at my fellow Ukrainians and I see how reserves they are, how prepared now they are, and of course there is a huge difference between now and 2014, when Ukraine was absolutely unprepared, absolutely kind of naive, uh, unprepared both politically and militarily. So now we are in an absolutely different position, and if we have the kind of new heat, new impact coming from uh, Russian forces, we are much more prepared for that. It is really important to underline the key point you're making there is that this has been going on for eight years. Uh, this is not new for Ukraine. Russia has been at war in Ukraine, slowly taking away territory on the eastern side for eight years now. So this is an escalation, certainly, but it's not, as you point out, new for you guys at all. However, it is different because, you know, on your borders now, there are 120,000 different, you know, Russian troops, apparently, you know, and you're surrounded in some ways because you've got Belarus now joining up with Russia. That's certainly changed the dynamics over there. It's a lot more complicated in terms of the intensity of the conflict that could arise if all-out war does break out. Yeah, exactly. It's very different situation on the ground now from military point of view. But uh, again, if we would look uh, at kind of wider political picture, we would see that the, this time it's not only about Ukraine. So now 
Russia basically is at the war with uh, Europe and with a democratic world. And what they want to do, not only to basically deny Ukraine's right to exist, which is the bottom line of this movements against Ukraine per se, but also Russia wants to change uh, Europe and the world from geopolitical point of view. They want to return to Yalta agreements, basically, and to new division in Europe, which did not happen since the end of World War II and then since the fall of the Berlin Wall. So now we see that grand events happening, and uh, Ukraine just happened to be in the middle of those events. So to summarize, there are kind of two layers to that, uh, the Ukrainian situation per se, and uh, the stake is the Ukrainian survival of independent states. So it's existential threat, and you're absolutely right, we are surrounded basically by Russia. But also uh, Russia is blackmailing the world with prospect of occupying Ukraine and they want uh, demands to be seriously taken and uh, I'm very happy to see that it's a non-starter for the world to accept that and to negotiate because it's basically terrorist approach in international relations. You take hostages and this hostage is Ukraine and then you set up some uh, demands and then you demand the ransom from the world. So that's how Russia now positions itself vis-a-vis the rest of the world. That's so critical, this idea that, you know, it's why I named tonight's show Red Lines Over Ukraine, because Ukraine is, in fact, a big significant factor here, of course. They're the ones that might be the victims of war here. But the reality of it is what's really going on is a geopolitical dance between the West and Russia about whether democracy is going to maintain its dominance in the world, about whether Russia you know, sort of more autocratic approach is going to get a toehold in the West in a real significant way. Michael, I've got a little bit of a background to get to in a second here, but as you see the situation, you've been monitoring things in Ukraine for a very long time. How likely is it that there will be an attack on Ukraine? Well, in terms of likely, I see it in one sense as certain because Russia has been attacking Ukraine and will continue to do so. So I think what we want to say is, will the nature of the attack change? Mm -hmm. So that's why I always want to talk about what we're looking at now is an offensive, you know, so will there be an offensive? For example, just for comparison, seven years ago right now, there was an offensive. It was in a part of the east of Ukraine around a city called Debaltseve, and the Russians eventually took that city. That was part of the invasion then. That was an offensive, but it was very constrained, you know, and in fact, the result of that, that was the last territorial gain that Russia made in this war, you know, that if, and it didn't happen, if the Ukrainian army had collapsed at that point, well, then Putin would not have stopped. He would have mm -hmm. kept on going. And we'd be in the position we're in now saying, oh, there might be a wider offensive and it will draw in other European countries. We would have been in that position seven years ago if the Ukrainians had not had this tactical defeat but strategic victory by stopping the Russian invaders after Devil Sebi, and that's been it. So you asked if it's likely they'll attack. I say yes, but the question is what will the nature of the attack be? Now, what the Americans and others are looking at is will this be a broad offensive such as we have not seen in Europe since the Second World War? you know, armored infantry pouring across the Russian Federation and also Belarus border and this kind of thing? Or will it be more of the same, maybe augmented raids and not just the usual shelling, but an attempt to take some territory in the east of Ukraine? 
it will be one of those. Mm. And I think prudent measures by Western partners of Ukraine now can make sure that it does not become the worst result, which is a broad offensive, which would return us to as you have had said, uh, Yalta conditions, actually not Yalta, but before Yalta, when there was the war, and yeah. it wasn't sure who was going to win. Yeah, but the prospects what we're saying is, you know, he has already got a quite a significant amount of influence in the eastern part of Ukraine. I mean, as you point out, it's taken 7% of territory already. A lot of the eastern part of Ukraine seems to have been softened up a little bit for um, any potential invasion. And more broadly than that, it seems unlikely that he'll want to disrupt such a big revenue stream for himself, which is the oil and gas revenue stream, which seems to go through Ukraine largely to Europe and other parts of the world. So, you know, the incentive for him might not be that great to attack Ukraine. Is that an accurate assessment? Well, Danny? I don't see him as having influence in these parts of Ukraine. It's occupation. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's that he he stole the land and, you know, holds the people there Hostage. who remain captive mm-hmm. because, you know, there's one and a half million internal refugees from this area. And if you look at east of Ukraine in general, well, then let's look at an area that he does not occupy, like Kharkiv. Mm-hmm. In fact, his influence there has declined dramatically, you know, if you look at unoccupied Ukraine. So his question is, he's not winning hearts and minds unoccupied Ukraine, and he's not going to succeed ever. In fact, it's going the other direction. Mm-hmm. Is this map accurate? You're looking at it right now. Does this show you this little section here in the red area? This, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, we area should add in Crimea because it has the same status. Right. It is invaded and mm-hmm. occupied territory of Ukraine, now under occupation by the Russian Federation. So they really are the same in terms of their status, regardless of what the Putin regime calls it. But we're talking about occupied territory. And then so you look at the areas outside of them, they are no different in terms of the composition. We're talking about Ukrainian land, Ukrainian people, you know, whether they speak Russian or call themselves Russian ethnics is not really the most important thing. These people are Ukrainians. You know, one of the signs of Putin losing the hearts and minds battle that I've observed growing over the years is this remarkable phenomenon of Russian-speaking Ukrainian nationalists, which Mm. is not at all in tune with the sensibility that Russian presents it. And this is this would be familiar to American viewers, for example, because it's the idea of the melting pot where they say, well, it doesn't matter where you come from and what language you speak, we're all Americans, the kind of idea we uphold certain kinds of values. Mm. So there's this transcending idea of nationhood, which is actually, yes, Ukrainian is the state language, and that's a part of this kind of thing. But it's really a remarkable and modern thing about how Ukraine has emerged. And really, this war has been a crucible for this emergence. So Putin's in a bind. He either has to have more of this occupied territory or he fails. We're going to talk a lot more about that. I gave you a little preview of my little piece there, so I'm going to play it now that I've previewed it. And on the other side, we'll talk some more about why this really does have an impact on America. And particularly in this piece, I try to outline some of the similarities between the events that led up to the attack on Crimea and the eastern part of Ukraine eight years ago and to what happened in 2016 in the United States. Take a look at how European countries lined up when it came to backing a U.S. decision to send arms to Estonia. Germany balked. But Spain and the Netherlands supported the move. Now, why did they support the move? It has everything to do with natural gas. It's easy to see that countries who rely more heavily on Russia for natural gas are more reluctant to support arming the Ukrainians. So if you look at the Netherlands, very little reliance on Russian gas. Look at Spain, very little reliance on Russian gas. But then on the other hand, Belarus, Poland, Germany, 29, 39% there. 
rely on Russian gas an enormous amount. Russia has used its natural gas and oil supplies as an instrument of foreign policy for as long as they've had oil. They even used the same levers on the Koch family patriarch almost a century ago. So this is what we can expect of them. Oil and gas is, in fact, an extension of Kremlin policy. Now, oil and gas is not the only way Russian exerts soft power. They have another export. We might call it transnational organized crime. They might think of it as the oligarchy. Russian oligarchs like Oleg Deripaska and Konstantin Malofiev. Deripaska, in particular, was responsible for hiring this man, Paul Manafort, to engineer the election of one Viktor Yanukovych. Yanukovych was a disgraced local politician in uh, Ukraine when his career was resurrected by Manafort and his deputy, Russian operative named Konstantin Kalimnik. You see him there on the left of that picture with a blue shirt and red tie. Yanukovych landed up becoming the Ukrainian president. He and his cronies then emptied out the state treasury and he escaped to Russia, where he remains today, after he was literally tossed out of power by the Maidan Revolution. Russia also uses cyber warfare, the same kind of warfare that they use in the United States, to sow confusion and division among Russian-speaking uh, Ukrainians in the East and the Western-leaning part of Ukraine, which is more favorable to NATO. And that is how we got to Russia's attack in the eastern parts of Ukraine and Crimea eight years ago. Now, if you're following along, the American narrative is not that dissimilar. In fact, if you look at Manafort, if you look at uh, Kalimnik, if you look at all the other participants, it appears to me that we're following a pretty similar narrative. It's why it's so important that what happens in Ukraine reflects on what will happen in the future of American politics. So correct me, I'm sure I got some history wrong there. Either of you jump in and tell me what I did, what I might have said wrong about the history there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And when uh, Putin attacks against Ukraine started back in 2014, we created Stop Fake and started to look more widely at what instruments Russia is using, like uh, non-kinetic instruments of war and disinformation was one of them, cyber attacks were another. And we started to look at those messages which disinformation is pushing for Ukraine. Are they unique or they can be very easily used in other places like mm. Europe, United States? And the approaches we noticed are pretty much the same. So they are looking for any kind of divisions, or if they don't see any, they can easily create them. And this division of Ukraine you mentioned, and division to the East, allegedly pro-Russian, Russian-speaking, and then the West, mm -hmm. was um, exactly created by uh, Russian political consultants before Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004. Mm. And since then, it became one of the technologies used in Ukraine. And basically, the spike of that happened in 2014, when they started to explain the war mm. with that division. That so it's very similar in, yeah, to, absolutely. to the so idea of the Republicans and the MAGA movement and Democrats uh, or more Democratic-leading part of the electorate. That really is a very similar division. was absolutely. created in the United States. was also created in Ukraine. Yeah, and uh, very often we've seen that the same GRU uh, or FSB people were involved in creation of those divisions. Mm -hmm. And even if they do not create those cracks in the society, they're just looking for them to make them bigger, to exploit mm -hmm. them. 
And also they created a uh, very huge machinery for this information, both in Ukraine and in the United States. We have RT over there. Mm-hmm. We have uh, radio stations, which were recently bought by Russians and which are available now in the United States. We have a lot of uh, social media influence, which amplifies all those uh, ideological uh, differences uh, between people. And uh, it helps a lot to what they want to achieve. So they really want to see uh, division in the societies and they want to play that line both in the United States, in Ukraine. They want to divide European countries. They want to divide Europe and the United States. And it works very well because we've seen uh, not that many attempts to stop that. Mm-hmm. And with uh, Russia, I'm always quoting Lenin, who said that, you know, when you're dealing with Bolsheviks, they're usually using their bayonet, you know, to get through something. And if they get to something kind of uh, hard, they stop. But if they get to the mesh, you know, they continue moving until they achieve their goal. So it's absolutely Leninist approach to dealing with the West, you know. Mm. And so it's a, they are probing uh, the grounds. It's a trial and error approach, you know. But if they do not see defense against what they're doing, they're just kind of uh, going up and up to the next level. And that's exactly what we see now with Putin. So as you rightly said, he's probing NATO, he's probing United States, how far he can be allowed to go with that. Mm. Michael, I think of Yanukovych a lot like I think of Trump, and it's not just because of Manafort and Kalimnik and Gates who are there to prop up uh, Yanukovych, but they're also there for Trump. Is that analogy, is that accurate? Um, yes, it is. But I think what the important thing is, how do the Russians approach both of these men? What are they to them? And they both have exploited them as assets or as agents of influence. Mm-hmm. So it's not, oh, they're agents and they're paid or they're, you know, under the SVU or something like that. No, that's not the point. The point is that they are manipulable because, well, they're both grifters is what they are, and they're easily manipulable. And to the Putin regime, they are agents of influence. And as such, it actually doesn't matter if they are effective. For example, if they're really good at helping Russia, the important thing is that they be chaotic and that they harm their own side with whatever influence that they've got. So, for example, as long as Yanukovych wasn't anti-Russia and, you know, he withdrew Ukraine's application for membership to NATO, he foolishly signed an extensive lease to Sevastopol, and that was fine. As long as it was eroding Ukraine, that was fine. And then when his level of theft was so outrageous and ultimately he rejected the association agreement with the EU and this also outraged uh, Ukrainians and then his position became untenable, well, then he just wasn't worth supporting by Putin anymore. And he pulled him. So he was effective up to a point, And then he was just an agent of chaos, you know, the Maidan massacre and this kind of thing. And then his last act was this appeal to uh, Russia to uh, invade Ukraine with a letter. And he was convicted in absentia of treason for that. And I think Trump is the same way to the Putin regime. You know, you say, well, he wasn't very effective. Uh, He didn't get sanctions lifted. Yeah, but he also wasn't effective for the U.S. as an ally of Ukraine, for example, or realizing its interests there or advancing the democratic agenda for democracy in the world. Uh, He was destructive of that. He was destructive of certainly political unity in the United States, exacerbating the, uh, you know, the divide 
in political culture in the United States, mm -hmm. you know, the breakdown of Absolutely. consensus that mm -hmm. had been a strength of American political culture for so long, I think people realize have been broken down. And, you know, he contributed to that. So you say, well, he wasn't so good for Russia. Yeah, but he was destructive for the United States, which is all the same to Putin. Stand by for more of my conversation with Yevgen and Michael about the conflict in Ukraine. Quick, name one thing that you would change right now that interferes with your happiness. Now, what if I told you there's a way to achieve that? BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy platform, making professional therapy accessible, affordable, and convenient. When you join BetterHelp, you'll be assigned your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. Your sessions with your trusted therapist take place in a safe and private online environment. And you don't need to drive anywhere or sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. And no one but you and your therapist, that's it, needs to know about what you're doing. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So if you don't like your counselor, no problem. It's free and easy to switch. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is is also available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. Start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash zev. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P.com forward slash zev for 10% off your first month. Thank you, BetterHelp. Yevgen, what do you think of that uh, analogy? Do you think that Yanukovych and, and Trump have similarities? I'm actually happy you mentioned uh, Yanukovych because he epitomizes uh, corruption of post-Soviet elites, and mm. uh, that was the foundation for spreading Russian influence in a post-Soviet space because it's like a common denominator and uh, why Russia became very unhappy with Ukraine? Because they realized that Ukraine is changing, as it's changing to the better, and it become example of another reality which is possible to achieve. And of course, having Ukraine besides non-corrupted democratic would be sending very wrong signals to Putin's consistency back in Russia. And that's one of the annoying moments for Putin. And that's why he was happy with Yanukovych as well as he's happy with any other corruptioner around because they can very easily find a common language. And for Ukraine, it was very, very important to get rid of all that and to start moving away from that. And uh, we have kind of a tagline, away from Moscow, because uh, Moscow is, it's like corruption international, which epitomizes anti-democratic society, anti-democratic corruption government. And uh, they also try to spread this corruption outside to those countries which uh, usually were boasting that they are absolutely free of corruption, including European countries. And we've seen some former European policymakers becoming uh, on the payroll of Gazprom and uh, mm -hmm. other Russian state-run companies mm -hmm. doing errands for them and other things. So we see that this is effective. And that's why we now also see some voices coming from the West saying, well, 
probably Putin is right and Ukraine is doing everything wrong. And sometimes, yes, those people just believe in that, but sometimes those people are just very well paid to promote that type of narratives around. 100%. Uh, you know, you mentioned the corruption and it seems incredibly corrosive. You know, um, with this one man, uh, Igor Kolomoisky, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly, is an example of how so much of this corruption is spread from Ukraine to the United States. And it's not just because he's connected to people like Rudy Giuliani and these other two characters, uh, Fruman and there were, you know, we, we were well familiar with that story because it was led up to the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. But he's also apparently a quite a supporter of Zelensky, of the president there now, and that he's in fact a big financial backer of Zelensky. Now, Kolomoisky is not allowed in the United States anymore because of the criminal enterprises he ran in the United States, especially in Ohio. And there's been several reports and several investigations that have been launched because he's corrupted entire cities, corrupted entire states. He's the biggest landlord in Cleveland, Ohio, I think. And because of that, uh, you know, it created a huge financial crisis in the real estate market there. There's also the fact that he was the owner of Privat Bank, which is a Ukrainian bank, and he built, some say, the Ukrainians of $5.5 billion. Some of that money may have actually landed up being invested in the United States, but it shows you the level of corruption that emerges when Kremlin rule arrives, you know, and it certainly was the case with Kolomoisky and all the way into the spread of that into the United States when Donald Trump was the president here. That speaks a lot to the corruption you were talking about. I don't know if you have any specific comments about Kolomoisky or anything like that, but how influential is he in your world? Well, when Zelensky was elected a president, Ukrainian society gave him a huge credit of confidence. And one of the biggest expectations was that he would distance himself from uh, oligarchs. And he picked up this expectation and was trying to deliver it and saying that, yeah, I really want to not to be involved with oligarchy and... Uh, even uh, what we saw can be called uh, war against oligarchs, but uh, again, we can argue a lot how effective it was, either it was just a rhetorical approach to that, or is he really doing that and distancing himself from people like Kolomoisky or any other. But speaking on behalf of Ukrainian society, I can say that we really don't want to see Ukraine being associated with oligarchs and corruption because uh, that's really created a problem for Ukraine for many, many years. And again, it was exploited by uh, people in Kremlin. They've been saying that Ukraine is not a real country. It's a failed state because uh, it's run by oligarchs and uh, actually supported by them in many cases, but they used it against Ukraine all the time, denying the agency to Ukraine and to Ukrainian people. And now when we follow Russian disinformation, they immediately try to portray it as a, one of the biggest downsides of Ukraine, sell it around like Ukraine is a hotbed of corruption. Mm. But in it's, fact, they're the, the ones inspiring, they're the ones supporting the corruption. Exactly. The Kremlin is the ones exactly. who are in fact making it easy. I mean, we've seen it with the Pavel Fuchs, we've seen it with so many people who are of, you know, they're Russian in terms of the fact that they were born in the Soviet Union when the Ukrainians were still under Soviet rule. But they, you know, spent a lot of time in, in Pavel Fuchs's case in Russia. Russia, and he appears to be an agent of Russian intelligence, or at least influence, who knows. But, you know, he seems to take orders from the Kremlin in terms of the things that he does. And, you know, and that, again, continues to underline the amount of um, corruption that seems to emerge from Ukraine, but doesn't necessarily. And all of that stuff seems to somehow connect to Rudy Giuliani. 
Because wherever you look in the world of Ukraine, Rudy Giuliani seems to show up somehow, you know, whether it's the Parnas Fruman combination or whatever. There's just a lot of Rudy when it comes to Ukraine. Do either of you have any comments about Rudy and about why he's so prominent in Ukrainian affairs? Well, I'd say he's actually not prominent in Ukrainian affairs. He's prominent in Russian corruption mm -hmm. because, you know, when people say, oh, Rudy Giuliani went to Ukraine and met with Ukrainian oligarchs, what he's doing is acting as a cutout. He's a go-between. And mm -hmm. as are these people he's meeting. So you look at their minor figures, and I'm thinking about people like, oh, Artemenko, who's mm -hmm. just a minor uh, pro-Russian uh, deputy, or he was. And he's a nobody. And in a way, Giuliani's a nobody too. But what they are is a way to have the corruption of the Putin regime correct, connect into the seats of power in Washington. Because if they can cook up a scheme, which they present as a peace plan, but was really a surrender Crimea plan, which is what they did, uh, it serves Putin. So I think if we focus too much on these figures, they're not decision makers, they're cutouts and say, what's the nature of what they're talking about and what they're achieving? It's a way to communicate. You know, when Giuliani made a trip in uh, 2017 and he goes to Kharkiv and he's there meeting like the mayor of Kharkiv, mm. who uh, deceased now, he was a pro-Russian figure. He says, well, what's going on here? Like, why is Rudy Giuliani meeting with the mayor of a city in eastern Ukraine? And that wasn't what it was about. <laughs> it was a connection. It was between the Putin regime and the uh, Trump administration is what was going on. For sure. A very significant one. Uh, Yevgen, uh, the prognosis right now is that the Biden administration has promised that there'll be more forces potentially sent to support Ukraine. But some people are saying that it's, in fact, America that's making the tension increase. And that's mostly a Russian talking point, but or a Zelensky talking point, I can't tell the difference. But people on the ground, they're feeling like America is contributing to the tension? Uh, no, just the opposite. At the very beginning, I was saying that compared to 2014, mm -hmm. now we feel a lot of international support and uh, support coming from the United States is actually one of those strong signals which we believe might deter Putin and Russia from further uh, aggression and further incursion because, uh, for example, today Ukraine received a plane load of uh, arms and that's important from both from tactical point of view because those armaments would be delivered to the front line at some point, but also it's important from a symbolic point of view. So it clearly sends a signal to Putin that Ukraine is not left alone. And that's exactly what he wanted to see. So he really wanted to see Ukraine being isolated again, as I said, because of corruption, because of failed state, uh, as he described it, because he always was saying that Ukrainians and Russians are the same people. So when he sees that the United States are supporting, and by the way, this support is absolutely bipartisan, mm -hmm. coming from both parties, and uh, today, uh, We've seen also a huge delegation from both parties, from uh, Congress living for Ukraine to have a first-hand assessment of the situation on the ground. So that sends a very, very strong signal of support. And of course, I've seen some voices saying that uh, when the United States are 
helping Ukraine with arms, with diplomatic support. They are contributing to the tension, just the opposite. They are contributing to uh, the non-military settlement because uh, weapons, for example, which are provided to Ukraine, they are defensive weapons. Ukraine cannot use it for offensive, as some people are saying that Ukraine is going to use it against uh, Russian forces in Russia, for example. And so that's absolutely kind of a wrong approach, and it's a, a false moral equivalency when people are saying that here yeah, both Ukraine and Russia are kind of share responsibility for this conflict and tension and other things. So uh, just let me be clear here, Ukraine is defending its right to existence. And if other countries are supporting this uh, political steps, diplomatic support, and also Ukraine is now asking different countries to provide arms. That's helping Ukraine to uh, defend itself. And we are saying, and the rest, and we would do the rest. So we are not asking anyone to come and to do the actual fighting instead of us, Uh, but we would do that. But please do support us. And uh, believe me, every signal sent uh, to Putin is very well received over there and analyzed and assessed. And every plane load of armaments coming to Kiev these days can delay or postpone or abort further Russian incursion into Ukraine. So every piece of equipment is counted. Such yeah, important I, I agree with that completely, mm-hmm. uh, that it reduces tension. Absolutely. Um, the way I look at it, Ukrainians are going to fight for themselves no matter what whether we help them or not and that's been proven and if all they have is a submachine gun that's what they're going to do but if they have a javelin missile that is a greater likelihood at success at destroying that tank which is in their country invading them so and every delivery like the delivery today does give putin pause and makes it less likely that he will join the offensive it is far more likely that a ukrainian with a javelin missile launcher is going to destroy a russian tank than with a submachine gun they're not going to do that right but they're likely to with that and these are defensive weapons and we know that putin takes notice for example military analysts have been sending me this information they've shown me how the russians are jerry-rigging a defense on their tanks because most of their tanks are actually quite old and not modern and they've been welding a superstructure on top of it to make the uh, explosive of a top-down missile explode Mm. away from the tank and they've kitted hundreds of their tanks with this the tanks that are now deployed at the border Mm. but it's actually not a 100% defense either. The missile is going to hit. It is still going to do substantial damage and probably kill the, tru- the uh, crew and quite yeah. likely disable yeah. the tank. And it makes it less effective a weapon. So every missile, like the ones delivered today, uh, makes it less likely that Putin will t- make the decision and says, oh, we're going to roll the tanks. Hmm, that's really thing. interesting. Because the cost, he knows, will be very much higher. So the, the arms that are arriving in Ukraine are very effective, both as a deterrent, but also because it'll give the Ukrainians the weapons they need to fight, should they need to fight, which hopefully they won't. Um, but the point is, they're going to fight anyway with, right. with whatever weapons they have. Right, and this right. means, so we, we're making a decision when we're doing this. Are we going to have them fight poorly or well? Mm-hmm. That is the decision we're making. And it is in our interest that they do it well, because if they do it well, the Russians don't succeed and the invasion battlefront doesn't get closer to us. 
Right. I mean, people in Western Europe and, and further on. I totally agree with Michael because uh, Putin's war is not going to end on Ukraine. So if Ukraine would be weak and if Ukraine would fall, they would move on to the Eastern European countries and our neighbors know that very, very well. Mm -hmm. That's why we see more and more support coming from countries like Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Czechia, because we have a shared experience of Soviet occupation. We know how it starts, how it looks when it starts, and how dramatically it ends with people killed, moved to Gulag, and disappearing forever. So for us, these lessons are very well learned. And so the people in Western Europe also should remember when Eastern Europe would fall, they would be the next, because if uh, Russian tanks would not be stopped by javelins in Ukraine, they would move on. And during the 2014 stage of the war, there was a very famous uh, internet meme with a Russian tank standing in front of uh, Eiffel Tower in Paris. And the saying was, yesterday Luhansk, it's in eastern Ukraine, mm. and tomorrow Paris. Mm. And uh, actually, I don't see any obstacles for that. Or even Alaska, you know. <laughs> yeah, Alaska Nash. Yeah, Alaska next. is ours. Yeah, so um, a couple of points from people. Stacy says that that's a very good point. Putin won't stop at Ukraine. Well, yes, indeed. That seems almost certain. Uh, Marie says uh, that Dugan wants a Eurasian Union. Similar point. I don't know if Dugan is still the guy that they're looking to for their guidance, but it could be. An upstate farmer says... Um, we've uh, slipped down that slippery slope before and it does not turn out well for anyone must defend democracy. Any comments on those from you gentlemen, on, on those comments? Uh, yeah, I would say, I would totally agree, democracy uh, defended because Putin see democracy as a, a danger for himself and uh, he is ready to go too far now to uh, make democracy at least looking weak mm -hmm. or to fail and that would be very, very dramatic changes, which would happen everywhere in the world. And basically, I am following Russian media 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And I can uh, say that conversations they conduct over there, they are absolutely bringing us to uh, times of, for example, Ruan, uh, genocide in Rwanda. So, for example, uh, on a talk show, they're discussing how they're going to kill Ukrainians, for example, mm. or how Russia is going to nuke the United States and uh, how many cities in the United States would be destructed by uh, nuclear weapons. And that's a kind of a, a new normalcy. So it's not something outstanding. They're really seriously discussing that. And that is happening 24 hours a day on all main Russian TV channels. So it's a normalization of the killing of Ukrainians, for example, based on our ethnicity. So is that, is absolutely... That, sorry, but is that, is that geared to... Why are they doing that? Is that for the Russian population to feel like they will want to go and, and commit these uh, crimes? Or is it just a, a sort of a nationalism that they're trying to build up? Yeah, so they basically militarize the mindset of their own people, and it happens again since 2014. 
So mm-hmm. to make sure that the concept of the Russia's war against everyone is not new to the Russian society, is susceptible to that idea, mm-hmm. and is not afraid of ramifications. For example, they're saying that we don't care about sanctions if they would put on us. We don't care about anything because we are a superpower. We have armaments and we can solve any problem with that. So it's not a time for dialogue, as they say. Mm. So there would be no negotiations. So it's absolutely a kind of a revanchist approach, revanchist rhetorics. And it looks very scary to me because I am really very interested in history and I was looking into Hitler and Germany and I see a lot of parallels in this rhetorics, which is now happening in Russia. I see the same overtones in how they uh, explain what they're doing and, and why they're doing. And it looks very, very uh, dangerous to me. Absolutely. I, and I like, Yevhen, how you made that comparison to the Rwanda gem- genocide, because someone from outside would look at that and say, how could radio have such influence? But it did in Rwanda. That mm. was how people got the information. It was totally dominated by one side with this language of hate, and it led to this horrific genocide. Now, in Russia, you might say, oh, it's a modern country, and people have the internet and so on. But as you know, it's television. And it's television that people watch and pay attention to, and it's lying to them and stoking up this hatred and fear just nonstop. And it does have the historical parallels. It is projecting Ukrainians not just as an enemy, but as subhuman, as a, an ethnic class that needs to be exterminated. And it is does lead to the worst possible result. Uh, that's interesting. You raised some uh, interesting points there. As Upstate Farmer says, radio has immense influence in the United States as well, pointing to Sinclair and uh, I don't know if uh, yes, yes, yeah, yes. and we also, shouldn't that. Yeah. yeah, and in World War II, it had an influence here in Arizona with the Council for National Policy inspired evangelical radio in rural areas too. Radio is still very powerful. It certainly seems like that's an interesting theme that you've placed down there. I, one of the you know the overarching themes that keeps coming up in the chat here is how nervous and scary it is that the same elements that infected um, Ukraine from Russia have also infected American politics and American society. From your perspective, Yevin, how do you... Um, suggest that Americans combat this, you know, very uh, toxic, cancerous kind of influence that uh, has arrived from Russia in America? Uh, Yeah, so I can share kind of a Ukrainian uh, perspective, what we've done. So after 2014, for example, Ukrainian uh, television regulator banned Russian TV channels, which were fully available here before 2014, we had more than 880 TV channels available, mm-hmm. and you would not believe what all of them were weaponized, even if those TV channels were doing uh, children programming mm-hmm. on music or movies, it all became propaganda. So mm-hmm. the Ukrainian Ofcom uh, regulator took them off air. And that was absolutely the right decision. And also, subsequently, uh, Russian social media were sanctioned, like ContactKVK. And um, Telegram is another place where mm. there is a lot of disinformation and uh, probably government should look into regulating that. 
and also the access to some uh, Russian propagandist websites were limited. And that's important because uh, we cannot just realize that the audiences are smart and they would decide by themselves what is great and what is malign and what is disinformation. So definitely there should be regulation. Another important issue is uh, deplatforming. So we really do not need to provide platform to uh, disinformation voices. And it's uh, also should involve cooperation with social media companies. Another important issue, and we really started to work on this, is sanctioning of those people who are involved in manufacturing of this hate speech and disinformation. And as far as I know, there is a draft of uh, act in uh, U.S. Uh, Senate. Uh, which in case of the first incursion, there would be sanctions on the main people involved in Russian disinformation. And this is really a very, very important point because those people have personal uh, responsibility for all this hate speech and bombardment they've been producing for years and years and years, and they definitely should be sanctioned. And uh, also it's important to withdraw advertising from those platforms and TV channels which distribute disinformation and hate speech and, and populism, because then uh, commercial entities are subsidizing disinformation outside with uh, uh, Russian government, for example, if we talk about Russian media. So, and last but not least, we should uh, understand finally that in Russia there is no traditional media system as we have in Ukraine, in the United States, in Canada. So the media system was absolutely destroyed by the government and. Uh, uh, the same with the civil society. So basically, there is no any checks and balances within Russian society. There is no political parties, movements, uh, NGOs, uh, media. So basically, the government now has a dominating role over society. And what is happening is a brainwashing of the society mm -hmm. in the most uh, brutal way and uh, preparing the society for, for the great war as they call it. And uh, if we would not take any kind of actions against this, uh, we would not be able to stop this. Because if we would only look at the kinetic part of the war, that's only a part of the reality. As I mentioned, there is other parts to this, like a cyber war, and Ukraine was attacked just uh, last week uh, on the cyber domains. Uh, uh, there is disinformation, there are people of influence uh, Russia is using, uh, we also discussed it. So kind of there are multiple layers uh, how you can tackle all those problems, but the time is running out. So yeah. we really you know, it's, inter it's interesting, I just want to, if I can just jump in there for one second, because the American situation is a little different because it's not just foreign media coming from Russia, it's not just RT. It seems that they've taken over Fox News, uh, which is the number one news network in America. It seems that they've taken over Newsmax. It seems that they have this other network called the OAN, which is, um, these are American networks, or at least they appear to be American networks, but somehow, whether it's through the management or ownership or secret funding or whatever, you know, these networks have become disinformation sources for the Russian government, including in the issue of Ukraine, where there are some of Americans are out there saying that they support Russia in the attack on Ukraine because Fox News and Tucker Carlson keep um, pushing that line. And this is the number one news network in the United States. What do you think we should do with that? Um, to put it in the American context, you see, Yevhen mentioned uh, sanctioning 
uh, these mm. individuals. And a, a difficulty with the United States is, well, the United States has the First Amendment and freedom of speech is protected. And as long as these organizations can say, oh, we're journalists and uh, our organizations are exercise of free speech, it's going to be a problem. But sanctions is the right approach. So let's take an example. Um, the head of uh, RT, the uh, what's her name? Uh, Sego, Simonian. Uh, Margarita Simonian, Simonian yes. yes. That person is a threat to U.S. national security. <laughs> yes, he is a threat mm -hmm. and should be sanctioned for the grave risk she poses to international peace and security, which is mm -hmm. the criteria of imposing sanctions. Mm -hmm. Well, she heads this organization, which is an influence organization, which poses a threat to U.S. national security. And so this is the way you can do it. It's not a question of free speech and journalism. She's not a journalist. RT is not a uh, news outlet kind of thing. And but Tucker Carlson is an American. Like, You're going to sanction Tucker Carlson? You can't. Okay. So how do we stop his Russian influence operation? Mm -hmm. Why is he doing? Who is he connected to? What is the influence that leads him to platform Russian pro propaganda uh, mm -hmm. on his channel? So who are those people? What are those entities? What makes him the agent of influence for aggressor Russia that he is? And so you go after those people and it's, it's like wrapping up organized crime, mm -hmm. right? You can't go after the big boss originally or the most influential, nice. but you find the bag man and you find the hit man and you turn them and you roll up the operation. And that's the way to approach it. Like the Absolutely. way we deal with organized crime. Absolutely. You have got anything else you want to add there? Yeah, I totally agree uh, with Michael. They are not a real media organization. So probably we really need to rethink the whole concept of media. Who is media today, you know? Mm -hmm. And who are the real journalists and who are those who are masquerading as journalists to use the First Amendment as an excuse to promote their disinformation, hate speech and other things. So it's kind of a freedom of speech versus freedom of reach, which is also kind of a concept which is now getting more and more traction around within media community. So who can get a reach? Yes, you can have your right to express your views, but mm. what platforms can be used for That's that? interesting. I haven't heard that concept this before. Freedom be of reach. And, I like uh, that. Revived, yeah. Interesting. Uh, also, another thing that is, they are not really journalists. So that's what I was arguing since 2014. And we should never, you know, sit on the same panel with them, you know, in discussing the virtues of freedom of speech and journalism, because they are basically killing journalism by uh, masquerading as journalism, because mm. that kills the trust to you as a journalist, to me as a journalist, you know, and people trust them less and less because they're saying, oh, there is no truth, you know, it's all relative, you know, there is this truth and then there is alternative truth and other things. So we definitely should limit this concept to that there is only one truth, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably there is no complete objectivity, but the truth is absolutely well-defined and we should know exactly who is telling the truth, you know, and who is just pretending and saying, yes, we're also media, but they're not. Right. Uh, this is a good question. Julia says, and, and we'll wrap up with this one, but why does Putin want to invade Ukraine now? Why didn't he do it when Trump was in office? It just doesn't make, it just doesn't seem like a very opportune time. That's a very good point. This isn't that the ideal time. You know, two years ago would have been ideal. Why didn't he do it then? 
Well, because uh, who's in office in the White House isn't the deciding factor for Putin. Mm. He actually is very uh, local in his perspective. And what happens in Ukraine is more important, mm. actually. So if we look at, you know, he did invade eight years ago and it went well, but only up to a point. And then the uh, kind of more static war that he's been fighting ever since has not turn things in his favor. So it's more because of what's happening in Ukraine or not happening in Ukraine from Putin's mm. point of view, that is the deciding factor. And he would have liked maybe if conditions were, Different. you know, uh, more favorable, like when in Trump's office, but it really isn't the most important thing to him. Mm -hmm. uh, Yevgen? Yeah, exactly. And I guess he was uh, waiting and looking if Zelensky would really be more pro-Russian leader of Ukraine compared to Poroshenko. And that was uh, kind of uh, their feelings uh, as soon as Zelensky was elected as a president. So they yeah, were... Yeah, they wanted to uh, give it time. Zelensky power was also yeah, a delaying and then factor. At some point, Putin said, I don't see any difference between Zelensky and Poroshenko. They are both anti-Russian. And from that point, uh, he decided definitely to move forward because he see how Ukraine is sleeping off Russian sphere of influence. So he started to have less and less leverage over Ukraine. So mm -hmm. he doesn't have Russian media. He doesn't have too many Russian oligarchs. He doesn't have Russian gas now in Ukraine. He doesn't have a lot of politicians uh, in Ukrainian parliament who can be described as pro-Russian politician. And Ukraine started to be more self-aware as an independent state, building its own institutions, civil society, army, uh, diplomacy, and other things. And at some points, uh, Russian politicians were saying, we are losing Ukraine. If we would not do something in a year, two, three from now, Ukraine is just gone because it, it becomes a very different, very separate country. Mm -hmm. Well, is Poroshenko back? He seems to be in the news lately. Is he attempting a comeback of some sort? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he was always around yeah. and they were competing with Zelensky kind of neck to neck in terms mm -hmm. of uh, their electoral support. And he has a very vital uh, political party, active in parliament, outside of the parliament. And uh, so he is quite a factor in Ukrainian domestic politics. And at some point, even uh, those people who've been following Zelensky's struggle with Poroshenko said that probably Zelensky is even more worried about Poroshenko coming back rather than uh, afraid of Putin. Mm. And that's described kind of their domestic infight between two of them. But that's good. It described Ukrainian uh, domestic political scene as a live, you know, and real when politicians are competing with each other. And that's good. what you would not see in Russia, for yeah, example. Absolutely. It's, that means democracy is working there. You know, Yevgen, uh, everyone here I know is thinking, even though we focus so much on American politics as it relates to Ukraine, uh, we're all with you in this fight. And there's enormous solidarity, I think, from everybody who is watching this show and uh, our hearts are with you and our minds are with you and we wish you all the best you know we don't think conflict is coming in great amounts in the near future we hope not but uh, certainly our our best wishes to you and to every ukrainian who is at least uh, you know in this moment still having a um, fear in their hearts as they approach a potential uh, attack from Russia. Um, I also want to give you an opportunity to talk about uh, your organization so our viewers can follow it. So please go ahead and, and tell people about stopfake.org. 
Uh, yes, yeah, so as I said, back in 2014, we created StopFake.org. It's a fact-checking organization which is uh, following Russian disinformation mainly, but we also are very active with COVID-19. We work also with uh, Facebook as a third-party verification partner. And uh, since 2014, we made a couple of most important things. So we defined who are the main players within Russian disinformation. We mapped the main narratives which they promote, and we also uh, debunked all those scenes. And you can find that all on our website, which is also available in English. So uh, that provided opportunity to compare Ukraine experience to experience of other countries, including countries of uh, Eastern and Central Europe, which is very similar, as I said. And that's why I really advise you to follow us also on uh, on the Twitter for the latest updates on disinformation in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about this. Thank you so much. And your, your Twitter account is Yevgen Vachenko, as it's written on the screen now without the space. And uh, Stop Fake org is that the name of the uh, uh stop faking news it's stop faking news in in news okay uh stop fake news is that right or in news stop faking news so it's okay. our appeal to the audience stop okay faking news. <laughs> okay okay well i'll make sure i post it alongside this uh, the rest of the show thank you so much again for being on the show tonight and michael mckay tell everyone how they can reach you you have a a Twitter account handle that's always uh, difficult for me to remember. So even though it's only five um, letters, yeah, just uh, letters. Uh, it's uh, at uh, MHMCK. And Michael and has I'm, a terrific feed. Everyone should follow both of your feeds. Michael's feed in particular has a, a really good uh, chronicle of what's going on in Ukraine. It has been for uh, persistent for the last few years, and it's been very helpful to me and to the other people in our audience to follow what's going on in Ukraine. And with that, uh, let's uh, say goodnight or early morning to you, Yevgen. Thank you so much for staying up so late. We really appreciate that, and hopefully yeah, we'll have you back on the show. Thank you very much. So goodnight to you, Yevgen, and goodnight, uh, Michael. And uh, we'll see everyone back here tomorrow night on Narrative Live. Have a great night, everybody. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.